1: Welcome to Screensaver, a film TV show hosted by me, Kyle Sconewell, and him, Robbie Earle. Today, we will be talking about The Flash. Robbie and I got a chance to see The Flash a few weeks ago, and if you are now listening to this episode, you likely have also seen The Flash. So first of all, congratulations on seeing The Flash. Second of all, Robbie, we saw it.
0: We did see it, and I actually feel like this is an appropriate place to use we came, we saw, we conquered, <laughs> just in that for us, this was the culmination of, of quite the, the DC journey. Yes,
1: in a lot more ways than I anticipated, to be honest.
0: Yeah, yeah, true, uh, which I'm excited to talk about. Over on Friends From Work Plus, Uh, We have been going back through some of the films that we thought would, I think, correctly show up here or have some relevance. And so we watched through uh, a lot of the Zack Snyder stuff from the last 10 years or so and went way back to the 1989 Michael Keaton Batman. So if you're interested in hearing more about those now, kind of in light of this movie, those are there available uh, on our uh, Patreon and Substack, but I'm really personally glad now that we watched through those because I, no doubt. I think it really did impact my my viewing here. It, it's almost hard for me to imagine what it would have been like to watch this movie having not watched both of those so recently.
1: And if that interests you, now's the perfect time to give Friends from Work Plus a try. And that's because, Robbie, for the first time ever... We're offering listeners a free month of friends from work plus content. That's right. A free month. All you have to do is make a purchase from one of our partners, our comic supplier, organic price books, or our pop culture apparel providers over at nerd riot using code friends from work, friends from work, all one word. In addition to a discount on your books or merch, you'll get a free month of friends from work plus including podcast coverage of Batman from 1989, the Snyderverse, and more. If you've never shopped with Organic Price Books or Nerd Riot, we'll make it easy. Just follow the links in the show notes. And for even more info, subscribe to Friends from Work's weekly newsletter over on Substack. But whatever you do, don't delay. This offer only lasts till June 30, and you won't want to miss out on what we have in store this summer. So again, make a minimum purchase of $25 with one of our partners, Organic Price Books or Nerd Riot, and use our promo code Friends from Work and show us that you have done that. Take a screenshot. And you will be rewarded with a free month of Friends From Work Plus Tier 2. Only until June 30. Before you give us a little intro into the film, and before I tell you what worked for me and what didn't work for me, I love that you started there. Just objectively, I was stunned at how connected it was to those things, and I was so grateful that those were the two films you suggested. The fact that we went back and watched Batman from 1989, and then took our journey through the Justice League, which really was just Justice League, but I also watched Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman. But mm-hmm. specifically, if you had just watched Justice League and Batman, holy crap, Robbie, you nailed it. There were so many things from wow. that that I would have missed. So thank you for suggesting those films. Wild how connected it was.
0: Well, and, and Man of Steel as well. I, yeah, I oh, yeah, oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Good point. That's one that... And, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear from folks that have not gone back through and watched these things. Because my assumption coming into this movie, and I was talking to Candace, I thought that just kind of given the state of the DC film world uh, over the last 10 years or so, and how kind of chaotic it's been, and how many different universes there are. I sort of assumed that there would be a lot more handholding here when it came to some of those things. Yeah. Do you feel like you it needed I mean?
1: a little bit more?
0: See, it's hard for me to say. Uh, I, but I would assume so, if only because I think a lot of people probably that you know that are going to see this movie saw. Zack Snyder's Justice League or at the least, you know, saw the, the theatrical Justice League, which was, I think, what, 2018. Mm. So, I mean, that, that, it's, it's still sort of kind of recent, but going back to Man of Steel, right? Like I, I hadn't seen that movie in, in years until we watched it. And, and so, and I, I don't think that most people would have had a reason to go back and do that either Uh, and so that's where I feel like a lot of people probably could have glazed over once we got into the part of this film that was really heavily drawing on the third act of that one.
1: Genuinely curious to hear from our audience on that because the part where Supergirl or Kara was confronting Zod, they just really quickly gloss over in the film what is actually happening how he's terraforming the planet, and why he's doing it. And I'm curious, if you haven't seen that film, did you still catch slash understand what was happening there? Genuinely curious. Again, I think Robbie and I caught it because we just had watched those movies. But that was pretty quick to a major plot point. Um, My second quick thought, then let's get into the intro of the film. I posted a social media reaction really quickly after walking out of the theater, and I got a couple of questions from people saying did this movie reset the DC universe like James Gunn promised? And (laughs) I had totally forgotten that that was a thing, that James Gunn had kind of mentioned it and that people were looking for this film to do that. And I was almost, maybe I'm missing something. I was almost so taken aback by the question because no is the answer, right? Did I miss something? Like, totally not.
0: Well, that I mean, that's a that's a great question, and I wanted to talk to you about that a bit here, and somewhere in this episode. Uh, I've got some questions. Okay,
1: well, let that frame our conversation then. Give us an intro.
0: Okay. Um, well, we are, of course, talking about The Flash, uh, a film that has been in the works for a long time. It is a part adaptation of the DC comic Flashpoint, which we may talk about here in a bit. That has been sort of trying to get off the ground, I think, really as far back as Ezra Miller's original casting in this universe, and maybe even earlier. It's directed by Andy Muschietti. It's written by, or at least has a screenplay by Christina Hodson, who folks may recognize from the Bumblebee film, uh, starring Haley Steinfeld. The story here is kind of interesting, it's by John Francis Daly. Joby harold and jonathan goldstein who was one of the main writers on spider-man homecoming and i had done some reading into this just kind of the history of this movie prior to going in and i know it kind of had a troubled path to the screen even before all the controversy around ezra miller so i think this is sort of like uh, when we talk about the the ant-man film Uh, from 2015 and how there had been a lot of kind of writing and rewriting and creative differences. And so I think you've had a couple of writers and directors attached to this project over the years. The movie, of course, stars Ezra Miller, Sasha Kaye, Michael Shannon reprising his role, Ron Livingston, and, of course, Michael Keaton, The music here is by Benjamin Walfish, who I recognized as uh, collaborating with Muschietti in the, the uh, it movies, the first of which I was a big fan of excited to talk about his music here, but I think that's just one of the things I'm really excited to talk about uh, as we dive into the flash. Okay. I just got to ask you
1: right off the bat. The suspense is absolutely killing me last night all you texted to our group thread was, wow, with five W's. I still, to <laughs> this moment, do not know if you liked the movie or was that a negative wow? Did you like The Flash or not? Uh, I liked it. I liked it. Okay. I liked it. I did not love it. You are not on social media, so you probably didn't see this. I gave it a 7 out of 10. I thought it was good. Just kind of good.
0: I think that is exactly right. Now, here's a tricky thing with these movies, and I, I think that this is, goes into some things that we've talked about over on the Friends from Work podcast, but when you look at the conversation around DC films, particularly this kind of DC film that's doing the, the quote-unquote DCEU, thing, which is DC's version of the MCU. I say that as opposed to a film like Joker or the Batman, which are kind of in standalone worlds. The bar is just so low. I think for everybody.
1: My wife, Annika asked me last night when I got home, she said, is it the best DCU film ever? And I was like, oh no, no. Uh, And then I was like, wait, (laughs) well, I guess the Batman doesn't count for that. Joker doesn't count for that. So she was like, is it better than Wonder Woman? I was like, oh, I don't know. It's like kind of right there in the Wonder Woman, Man of Steel range for me. Uh, And that's when I realized exactly what you just said. It's not like you're clearing some absolute film masterclasses.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And there are a couple of things here that I think were they to show up in a in a Marvel film or in a film of just kind of a different franchise with a different reputation would have been a lot more troubling for me. But I think that again, I, it's, it's almost as though I go into a movie like this and every time I really am enjoying myself, I'm kind of, I'm so delighted by that, that I think my perception of the movie is probably even a little bit skewed because I don't, I think when things go bad or don't work for me, I kind of just, that's my expectation. So I don't really focus on that. And so I think I come away from a viewing like last night's with just a lot of high points in my mind, rather than any kind of anxieties about, you know, what they're doing to a franchise that I have any level of investment in. Does that make
1: sense? 100%. Okay, so then let me just hit you with some random notes here and you can react accordingly. Since we're both in about the same spot,
0: we haven't talked about this.
1: For me, I thought Michael Keaton was the standout. Like, And I know I'm a Michael Keaton fan, so I did carry over some preconceived biases here. But I thought he performed well and fit into his role, but also his moments all got the biggest cheers. So much so that you could maybe argue that it actually took away from the story they're trying to tell with the flash. But I'll get to that in one second. His moments were pretty special. I loved seeing him using like slightly outdated tech, but still finding a way to be a badass and fit into the role with this, these like crazy advanced beings, mm-hmm. which was really cool. Yep. I was moved emotionally by his death and I really loved all the ties to his origin as Batman. I mean, I could not believe they said that you want to get nuts. Let's get nuts because Robbie, are you kidding me? I had watched Batman for the first time ever on screensaver plus a couple of weeks ago. And I asked you about that line. I was like, what (laughs) is it with that line? It's so weird to me again. That's someone knowing nothing about it. So I, It just brought so much joy to my heart to hear them bring that line back as such a wink to the camera was so cool.
0: I, man, I I totally agree with everything you just said. I have kind of six little random as I was leaving uh, notes written down and three of them are just different ways of saying how much I loved Michael Keaton in this movie. In our, in our kind of screensaver plus episode on the Batman 1989 film, we talked about how one of the challenges with a movie of that era is making comic book violence, you know, look realistic or or look satisfying in a way that it does on the page on the screen and how really you didn't get effects to do that on on the combat side until closer to the early 2000s when you have a a movie like Spider-Man by Sam Raimi come out. Uh, And so... A lot of that stuff in the 89 film is still a little bit clunky. I I was a little concerned with what it would look like to then translate that character into a 2023 film and specifically into the kind of 2023 superhero context. And I thought they handled that so well. Like, I had so much fun watching this Batman kind of whip around that I was sitting there realizing it was the most fun I think I've had Seeing a, a Batman, like a superhero Batman, do his thing since I don't know. Wow. Like, yeah, yeah, it, it was just a total because, and, and what I appreciated about this, and I want to talk about just the maybe this is a good time to talk about the Batman of it all period after we kind of talk Keaton. But I realized that one thing this movie did really well is the versions of Batman we got were even, even the Ben Affleck version that we got here, you know, he had the blue cow instead of the black one, which is kind of a callback to a lighter, like the, the old school kind of fifties comics mm-hmm. that then gave way to like the Adam West era. Like, and he was a little more jovial and. Well, the lasso of truth
1: helped. Yeah.
0: True. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I I feel like they realized. No, no, sorry.
1: I, I'm, I'm being serious. Because even though that was a quick throwaway thing, we've never really seen that lighthearted of a Batman.
0: So oh, no. it yeah, kind of was agreed. almost a welcome sight. Well, and it was I thought that was actually a funny part when he's like, yeah. you know, if I really wanted to help fight crime, I could just give away all my money and solve poverty. Exactly. No poverty, That's what no I'm crime.
1: saying. <laughs> yeah.
0: I uh no, I love that. And and just in general, I actually I thought we we talked about how Ben Affleck's Batman just has not historically worked very well for me. I would say this is maybe the most it has worked. I also like that he wasn't as, like, big and bulky and brooding. Yes, yep. Uh, and his so reveal I, was dope out yes. of the,
1: the little Batmobile thing.
0: I mean, that whole first scene, just is sort of a picture of what the Justice League looks like in action right now, kind of what the status of the, kind of what the state of the world is. I thought it was really fun.
1: How about the exploding truck and then him bailing on the motorcycle and kind of flying in as Batman? That was pretty cool. We haven't seen that version. He's always been so techie to keep up with the Zod-level bad guys. You know what I'm saying? Like, when he's fighting giant, giant monsters, you don't get to see a lot of ground-level Batman because it's just yeah. And that was kind of fun. Uh, I also agreed that it was just fun to see Age of Ultron style Justice League. Like the comment about we're not great with the mental health part of it yet.
0: Right, right. And
1: how they can't get a hold of Diana. They don't know what she's doing. I like the the glimpses into the active Justice League,
0: you know? Mm -hmm. That was fun. And man, just that kind of chunk of the film, uh, that opening act, I guess. I think it was just so refreshing for me. Because the DC, this universe, has been generally, not always, but generally just so grim. Like, mm-hmm. even even going back to Man of Steel, the lighting is so kind of pale. And it's just, to see a, an actual kind of colorful, vivid, but, you know, our Justice League from, you know, the Joss Whedon version arguably had parts of that uh, that were not great. But even then, they were against a really dreary backdrop. Here it just felt like kind of a blast from the past of, of classic DC comics, kind of like that sense of wonder. I thought it was that was a really nice, really refreshing look at a universe that has been so kind of groany over the years. No doubt.
1: Okay, I have a massive two-parter here. One side of the coin and then the other. Okay. Okay. First, let me just say overall, the cameos again in this multiversal saga that continues over the last decade for film uh, watchers were really fun for me. I mean, it was fun to see Diana. It was crazy to see George Clooney at the end. We already talked about how much I enjoyed the Michael Keaton part. All the little Superman drops, the references to Henry Cavill's Superman, and then the other Superman references, all of that was mostly fun. I think I have totally come around to accepting this era for what it is, and it allows these massive franchises with all this intellectual property to mine the deepest parts of those intellectual properties, and I am enjoying it currently. It is a nostalgia play, but I like it. So for the, for the most part, the cameos were really fun. That's one side of the coin for me.
0: Do, do you think that the average moviegoer is aware of the Nicolas Cage Superman backstory? Nope, because I am not. Okay, I, I figured because I feel like that's kind of a deep cut thing to know it's, it's like, it's funny how Nicolas Cage has this, this history of, of almost landing certain roles that would have, you know, put us on our own alternate timeline. <laughs> he was also famously um, an initial pick for Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, wow. Wild, wild stuff. That would have been uh, a different timeline for sure, no doubt. Would have been a timeline that I would have struggled to, to live in. And that's someone that loves Nicolas Cage. So I did, I... I I thought that was really fun. The Christopher Reeves thing always kind of makes me feel warm inside. I thought that was really nice. And I think we did get a little bit of a, an Adam West Batman shout out too, right?
1: Well, you didn't explain your Nicolas Cage thing. He just almost got the role of Superman, basically, you're saying?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, he, uh, there was, a, I'm trying to remember who is was, who was supposed to direct this. I should, I should look this up real quick because it was, it was kind of an interesting lost Project, I was surprised given that that his Superman got so much like he got a couple of different shots during that whole uh, yeah that whole period. Okay, yeah, I, this was my first instinct, but I thought maybe I was misremembering. It was to be a a Tim Burton Superman movie. Oh my, oh my, and it, it would have been what Tim a timeline Burton that would have uh, been, <laughs> right? And, uh,
1: boom boxes yeah. galore. <laughs> Anywhere you look, oh, boom man. boxes.
0: <laughs> yeah. I Superman flying around with the boom box on his shoulder. I, uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There's a part of me that here's the, here's the problem with living. I'd pay money to see it. Yeah. I, 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 I wish that this movie was made in, in 1987, which is when I think it was being floated. I'm afraid to say that because we now live, like you were saying, in a in an entertainment world that is so reliant on nostalgia that if enough people say that, someone's going to make it, and I don't think that that should happen. But yeah, it is one of those so things careful. that uh, yeah, right. With uh, great um,
1: power comes great responsibility.
0: Ca- <laughs> we're uh, we're we're living in in morbid time still, I guess, but. The other side of that coin, the biggest drawback of this film for me
1: is just the release date. Why do I say that? Hmm. This is a good multiversal story. It's fun. It's good. The only problem, one of the best multiversal stories, in my opinion, ever released just a few weeks ago with Mm -hmm. Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. And I could not help but compare it is, it just, again, feels so similar to Civil War versus Batman versus Superman when it's like, yeah, this yeah. is good, but man, it's not as good. And one of the ways that I thought this film struggled a little bit, again, I gave it a seven out of 10, so I still liked it. I would still call it fresh. One of the things it struggled with is we talked about on the, on the cross the spider verse episode that. As crazy as the multiverse gets in that film, and I won't spoil anything, as big and comprehensive and as deep of a dive as they take into the origin of the multiverse there, the story feels like Miles still. It's a Miles story. Somehow, in all of the craziness, they center it on Miles, and that's what makes it so good. I felt like here, we wandered a little bit. They, they tried to center it on the Flash with his mother and what he was going back to do. But I just felt like at points we were so concerned with the cameos and Batman was stealing the show that there was a section when they were in the Batcave planning and stuff that I literally had to go like, oh, what are we doing again? Like, why is he here? oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He got pushed out of the, the wormhole thing and he was trying to help his mom. But, like, I had to double take. And I felt like at points, we lost focus on what the story is. So in my social media reaction, I said, it wandered a little bit. Did you feel that?
0: Uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a classic case of things, not going fully off the, off the rails, but I, I think the, this is a, a third act issue uh you know that we see brought up in in the superhero movie context but I think often I I push back on that and here I think that's exactly what's going on because when the movie is focused on Barry's journey and and his own intention I think it it works really well and it makes a lot of sense and I even think The interactions that he has with his younger self are are really fun and often funny. The interactions that he has with Keaton's Batman are really fun and often funny. But by the time we get to the Zod of it all, it goes so hard in that direction for a little bit. Right. But then... It wants to remind you, oh, but uh, remember this purple guy that threw him out in the first place. And so, and then, oh, and look, like his younger self is actually getting really dark all of a sudden and really obsessed with going back and changing everything in a way that doesn't necessarily feel earned yet from that character. And then we have all the universes colliding in a way that's never been explained based on the kind of time travel lore that we've gotten so far in this movie. And right, so I Ben think Affleck's they're, they're...
1: Batman said it could destroy everything. That's the only thing I can remember of them hinting at what that could possibly be.
0: Yeah, well, and, you know, I think that one thing that kept going through my mind here was how how much this movie w- was similar to Avengers Endgame in, in a couple of ways, where they were trying to do the time travel thing in a different way than we normally think of it. And even Michael Keaton even has a line where he says, you probably saw a movie at some point that taught you that time travel's like this, but it's not. I mean, that's almost verbatim a line that we get from Endgame. Uh, Right. Or or maybe a summary of a scene, if you will. And But there, I think that they did a pretty good job of laying out the rules. And, you know, you can you can go back and argue whether there are plot holes or not, and people have, but I think it at least makes sense within their own structure, what they're trying to do. And here I I did, like, I really liked that scene from Michael Keaton where he's explaining it, but I just don't think that it necessarily provided a framework that we could work with until the very end, you know, whenever he's, he says he unmade the spaghetti and we get what that means. But I, I, I still yeah. don't understand why Barry going back created any of the crises that it created.
1: Right. So so two things there. That's another point. I mean, so not, not only did I feel like the movie wandered a little bit in getting obsessed with the cameos and pulling some of the story off Barry as a character, to which Spider-Verse didn't do that, now you're getting into the second part of that, which is, there were parts that were just straight confusing. And I think it's really because what you're saying between Endgame, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Spider-Verse, this, No Way Home, no way home and Loki, I feel like we're almost getting different explanations for every single view of time travel slash multiversal. Right? So the whole point of this here at the end was you can't change it, right? Right? That was the whole point. Right. But in Spider Verse, we still don't know. And in Endgame, you can change it if you put things back. Right. So it's just starting to get. That sounds like I'm dumb, but it's just starting to get a little overwhelming with which movie is following which rules and details. So I'm with you. Like, I get what this is saying, but you start diving into the weeds of. They even reference this. They reference the actual time loop, the plot hole of if it took that character pushing him out to create that character. Right. How does that work? Yeah. And, and well, they kind of no, exactly. they, get, they get around it by Michael Keaton saying, time isn't linear.
0: Well, and, and that's why I was, the first time I, I realized I wasn't really tracking with their understanding of time here, was when Barry, who we're, we're later told, which makes sense, you know, because in Justice League, he, he has this famous moment of going back in time by a second or a few seconds to save everybody. So it, it makes sense when we're told that he's read up a lot on time paradoxes and all these things. And so I feel like knowing that he's someone that's supposed to kind of have an understanding of whatever the time science is in this universe I didn't get why he felt that if this alternate younger version of him didn't have, didn't get his powers, he wouldn't get his powers. Because to me, I thought it was clear. And maybe this is just because I've watched so many of the movies that you just referenced Uh. lately. But to me, I was thinking, okay, but you have different memories. Like you're clearly...
1: Not you, the exact you have same a different path, right? Yeah. Right.
0: So it doesn't, it didn't like that. Didn't feel like a real threat to me, which then made me think, okay, I think what we're about to have happen is he's going to lose his powers in the process of giving the the younger Flash his powers, which is then what we get. Which was I liked that scenario, and I liked that that the the dynamic that set up between them. Specifically, I thought that that was a great way of showing us what The Flash's origin would have been, you know, had we gotten a movie like that prior to Justice League. So I I liked that, and I feel like they were trying to do that even by kind of contextualizing him in Man of Steel and him saying what had gone on then to where now I have a sense of who that character was. But it did because... I didn't really buy the the need to go and recreate that moment in the first place. Mm. it It felt a little hollow, if that makes sense. like the 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 getting there wasn't quite enough for me, even though I think that it did bear some fruit.
1: Right. I think that's what I feel too. Slightly shifting gears, but on that topic, react to this. Two side coin again. I thought the heart behind the the writing and the acting was mostly there and the humor was mostly there. Mm -hmm. However, and I wish I could change this about myself, for some reason, I can't click in with Ezra Miller's performance of Barry. Hmm. All politics aside, not even thinking about that at all. For some reason... Like, some of the jokes on paper, I was thinking about, I'm like, that should be funny, and my theater's mostly laughing. But for whatever reason, Barry and I, going all the way back to Justice League, are just not on the same wavelength. I, I, It's hard for me to put my finger on when he is in the Batcave and the young Barry is getting so over the top that old Barry snaps and says, like, you don't even know, like, you don't even get what you had, and I have I just didn't buy almost any of that moment. The Hmm. the heartfelt moments come from him playing off other characters a little bit, but even those are seven out of tens. It's not like I'm weeping in my chair, but I see what they're going for. There's something about Ezra's performance that doesn't click with me. I don't find Barry very funny, and I know this is probably blasphemous. I'm the hot take guy the premise of him meeting his old self felt like a really good idea to me on paper, but I just ended up getting really annoyed by the young Barry, which I think you're supposed to. That's the point, but it just almost got too much. Like by the time we got to the very last fight against Zod and he's still being a dumb, dumb, I just was tired of it. I was very fatigued. Like this isn't funny. It's I'm not laughing at it. And we're now like two hours and 10 minutes into the film. And you're still making like, I'm dumb high school jokes. College jokes, which again, I, I, it should be funny on paper. So there's just something with the performance that doesn't quite click. I will say the other side of that coin again is it did allow me to enjoy more the grown-up Barry. I actually liked the no power, more yeah. mature version yeah. of Barry. I really enjoyed Barry being forced into that role. That was more fun because it was pointing out the ridiculousness of the young Barry, and that's kind of how I felt about the Justice League Barry. But yeah, I don't know. It's not worth it to me. Like that growth wasn't worth the annoyance I felt
0: from the Young Barry, and I know I'm Scrooge. That's Scrooge. I get it. Some people uh, are gonna I watch mean, this I,
1: film and think it was so funny,
0: for sure. I so I I laughed at a lot of the Barry moments. Uh, Candace and I both did, and I think a lot of the ones that I laughed at were the the conversations between the two. One thing that I thought was impressive was the way that Ezra was was able to draw out such different versions of the character. There's a higher voice with the younger Barry that obviously, even before uh, Barry gets his power, that Barry gets his powers. He's, he's got the kind of like manic energy and you don't see that as much with the older Barry. I, I think that, I, I, I think I see what you're saying and. Oh,
1: I know I'm probably in the minority. My theater was laughing. I just, I don't know what, it just, My soul is dead. It didn't work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I I don't think that you're crazy. It's one of those things where there are times where I would say you're crazy. And this is one where I could see it going either way. Remember the scene with his roommates? Yeah. See, that's not one that I thought was particularly funny.
1: See, like, my theater was laughing and I'm like, this is not my humor. This is low-hanging fruit humor to me. But It's not clever. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think that's fair. But I did think, and part of this is because I think... Keaton's comedic timing is legendarily good, but I thought the scenes with the three of them, those almost always got a laugh from me whenever there was a joke out there.
1: Again, Keaton is way better, but yes.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. A a Uh, little bit.
1: I I smiled a couple times,
0: yeah. Wow. Yep. Brutal. Okay, I I do want to season something else you said there, though. Thinking back to... Some of these other films we've referenced and Endgame in particular, because that's, that's a film that maybe has the most distinct three act structure of, of any of these recent massive superhero movies. I think one of the problems with this in general was every time Barry picked up kind of a new character or a new element of this he carried that with him all the way to the final scene. You know, like there wasn't this, like I think if we were looking at the interactions between Barry and his younger self, and that was the second act of the movie of him kind of navigating this alternate world, but then that kind of phased out to get us to, okay, here's the multiversal crisis if that's what they want the big climax to be or or whatever. I think that would have been a lot easier to digest. I think the problem is, by the end of it, it's just it it kind of was a a big soup of a lot of things. uh, bowl of spaghetti, I guess, which is maybe the point. But it was like i I think that there are several things where maybe if they had kind of been given their own place within this story, then we wouldn't have felt some of the the wandering that you're talking about but I think because it was all, at least by the end, operating on the same level, like even to the point where we're trying to figure out what Kara's motivation is, you know, towards the very end and whether she's going to help and whether she's good. And then she's getting really mad because she finds out that Kal-El is dead. And and it was just like a, all things that in isolation, I actually think worked pretty well. Like it's one of those instances for me where, if you were to just pull out some of those scenes of her and Zod, I think that they were generally pretty great. And I really liked her portrayal of the character. I thought it was just generally kind of badass in the exact way that I would want it to be. But I feel like it kind of had no business being in this movie. Is that crazy?
1: Well, so on that point, I thought the performances across the board, that was one of my notes, were pretty good. I don't know that anyone was like unbelievable. I talked about Michael Keaton, but... I thought everyone did their their job pretty well, even with the recasted father, by the way. Did you catch that? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but but to your point, this is exactly what happened in my notes. and This is why it's so funny I'm doing this podcast with you. I wrote down live in the theater, why did she decide to come back? And then I crossed it off because five minutes later, she explains why she comes back to get Barry. But I think that's kind of, interesting, right? Like as a viewer, should I have to wait five minutes for you to explain it to me to understand why? Like the last time you left, you were mad and said, people aren't all good. But then we didn't see much development of you realizing like, oh, people are worth saving. Like where, when did we get that moment? Like when did she change her mind? She all of a sudden just comes back and gives Barry his powers back. And then I was like, wait, why did she like, and and then she she had to explain it, so that's the kind of thing where I'm like, yeah, I don't even know that I needed it in the movie. I guess I don't know. <laughs> if you're having to just straight tell me after the fact, I think yeah. you a little bit dropped the ball on explaining that.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's fair. And there's the one so, shot
1: of her looking at Zod, killing some humans, you know, from the sky. Right, but. She was just mad at the humans like literally 30 seconds ago. So I don't know why that was so bad.
0: Like, I I, I think I buy that it's her being ashamed that that is sort of the last representation of her people yeah. and culture. I think you so, know? Too. so. But I, which again, I'm saying, like, I, I think that all of these, like, if you gave us a story that was this alter, and this is one of the things I think DC Comics always excel at. We've talked about this, doing these sorts of else worlds stories. If you gave me a movie that was focused on, you know, what if Clark never made it to earth or never became Clark. And instead we had this protector that was sent and she was kind of stuck there without the person she was supposed to protect. And how would that play out? Like, I think that's kind of an interesting spin on a superhero movie. And I like the way this character was imagined. I like the portrayal. I would think be down with that, but yeah, it just, in this context, that's a lot of development to squeeze into a few minutes. And you're right. The fact that it has to be forecasted in the way that it does says a lot. Now, granted, I I think I prefer some middle ground between things moving too quickly and things moving exclusively in slow motion, a la Zack Snyder. <laughs> but... I, I, I think I would have liked it to be a little bit slower.
1: <laughs> I need to ask you a couple questions of legitimate clarification. This is neither a what works or what doesn't work, it's not a good or a bad thing. At the very end of the film, George Clooney is there as Batman or as Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. So Barry is just, again, landed in the wrong universe.
0: Okay, so this is what I wanted to talk about. And this is part of what my wows were, were uh, in reference to.
1: Okay, the can of tomatoes. That's another hint that he's at the wrong universe because his father did look up in that universe?
0: Okay, so I, I think this is how I read this. Uh, he, in the grocery store, you know, he sees the camera at the last moment before he heads back. And he has the realization that if he just moves the tomatoes from the bottom shelf to the top shelf, his dad will look up and then he'll be on the camera.
1: I didn't catch that. You're right. You're right. They don't
0: make it super clear. Uh, But the, and then the beauty of that, I think within this, this movie's mythology is that the video footage wasn't even viewable until modern day, whenever Bruce Wayne was able to put it through whatever tech. So it wouldn't have cleared his dad initially. It wouldn't have been able to clear him until now. So nothing would have actually changed until that moment. Now, Can I also I point that, out the
1: ridiculousness of he'd have to move every can of tomatoes?
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, but also- you know? But it's also just, here's the, like the problem for me is we- we never were told why Barry putting the tomatoes in his mom's cart in the first place led to any of what we saw. Which no, no, means, yeah, yeah, we
1: were. Yeah, we were. Because they needed two cans and they forgot one
0: at the store. No, 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 no. No, but I mean, but I never, we were never told why his mom then not dying, you know, and his dad not being framed, like why that then well, led to this, totally different timeline. Like, exa- okay. we, we were never told exactly what that fulcrum was.
1: Okay, I think the assumption is he puts the second can of tomatoes in the basket, so now she has two cans of tomatoes, so then she never asks her her husband and son to go get more tomatoes, so her dad never steps out into the car, and then therefore right. her dad is around to help prevent the robber from wanting to come inside the house because he thought no one was there, and then freaked out when saw his mom. So I think just the whole idea that her husband was also there, he would have helped prevent the crime.
0: That's No. No, 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 I think that's exactly right. But what I mean is the step beyond that, like we were never, I know again, Michael Keaton's whole explanation is, well, if anything changes, you know, it swings on a fulcrum and therefore the past changes too. But we were never told why it was, what it was about Barry's mom surviving that messed everything up and why it was kind of this point of inevitability that she had to die. Like we were never told exactly what the causal relationship was, which wouldn't be a huge deal for me and still isn't a huge deal, except that I feel like there's a lot made of, you know, you step on the wrong blade of grass and you could change everything to where then... I, th- I think if we knew what that process looked like and knew a little bit more about what kind of multiverse we're dealing with, it would make a little bit more sense why doing something as simple as just changing the cans wouldn't be a threat in the way that putting the can in the, in the grocery cart was.
1: Okay. So you're saying he still changed something. And in this case, it worked out well. That's what you're saying. So why would that not also screw it up is what you're saying?
0: Well, which I, which I think, I guess I'm, I guess I'm answering my own question here with how I'm going to respond to your, the second part of your question. Well, that's Um, what I was
1: going to say is the George Clooney thing. Then the answer that it is still screwed up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, and I think that was my, my, my prior point is just I wish that there had been a little bit of added clarity around some of that stuff uh because oh, I for think sure. it would have made some of this hit better and make more sense. The but fact all that, that I'm asking say,
1: you means that it lacked a little clarity. <laughs>
0: right right. But but I do think um that uh yes, my understanding is the universe that Barry is now in at the end is going to be identical to the Snyderverse just to the extent that DC studios wants it to be and not to the extent they don't want it to be. So I think it's safe to assume there is a Superman in this universe, but I don't think it's going to be Henry Cavill's Superman, but it's also not going to be
1: George Clooney. As Batman. Well, right?
0: and that's where I'm that's that's where I'm really curious because I genuinely don't know what I was supposed to get from that and the credit scene that followed right. it.
1: Like if it was a young Bruce Wayne that's a different actor that was rumored to join the the DCU, that would make total sense to me. But I don't think they're building their Batman around George Clooney now. So if well, they're just so- throwing George Clooney in as another fun surprise cameo. Then that seems to be a weird, like,
0: yeah. Again, it well, makes
1: sense to me that they're using that final scene to reset the 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 universe that the DCU is in. So now it's Flash, a new Superman, and then we got to talk about the Aqu- Aquaman thing. I was even confused by the Aquaman post credit scene. I was, I was, yeah, okay. are they saying that it's George Clooney is now in the DCU? And was that Aquaman admitting he's not Aquaman, or that was him giving up? Being Aquaman, so it's gonna be a different
0: character. I didn't get that. No, no I thought, I thought th- him giving him the ring, that was just him saying. Wasn't there some line about like more beer? Like take this and like trade it for for more beer for me or something like that? Like I thought that that was just like a weird throwaway joke, but maybe I missed. Misheard. Okay, so I didn't...
1: was the whole post credit scene just for fun?
0: I, I think so. But, well, I think that there's a little bit of him trying to explain the, oh, but, you know, they're all three Batman. Here, I think that there are two ways that I could interpret that scene. Uh, And I'm sure that probably either by the time this episode's coming out or shortly thereafter, we will get an explanation probably from James Gunn because he's someone that I think likes to clarify things. (laughs) Interpretation one of both the final scene with Clooney and that scene with, Jason Momoa is that Barry is now in a different but similar universe so the universe has been reset and that is in fact Batman and then whenever he's talking to Jason Momoa at the end what he's saying is I used to be in a universe with Ben Affleck Batman and you were there and you were basically the same but you know like a little bit different but other people were totally different and then he says three Batmans because he's also talking about Keaton Batman. Is Batman the plural? I guess um, that's that's Batman. one interpretation of that, and and the reason why
1: bad gentleman. I think
0: okay. That, the reason I, I think that that could be <laughs> bad gentleman. Uh, you hated that joke. <laughs> no, it <laughs> took me a second. Um, I uh, I think you know, and there are people more plugged into. Uh, the the kind of ongoing DC slate than I am. But I remember James Gunn talking about one of the films in development being a, a Batman and Son adaptation, which is this Grant Morrison comic from the mid-2000s that I actually just recently read, not uh, really in preparation for this, but where you have a younger Batman basically winds up having a son that's a young son, like 10 years old. And you have these dynamics there of, of kind of a a father, you know, you you get the fatherly stuff with Robin, but whenever it's an actual fatherly thing and it's, it's really well done in part because Grant Morrison just generally does good comics. But the fact that I've seen James Gunn say that and the fact that if you look at, if you look at what DC has going right now, you see that Robert Pattinson's Batman is, is pretty popular. I, I think most people really liked that iteration in that right, universe. Right. Um, Why not a cameo
1: there? But keep going, sorry. I
0: know. Well, I think that I, I, it's kind of like the Nolan thing where I'm like happy I know, to just I know, let it stay untouched. But, I
1: know, I know, I know, sorry. But
0: I do, I do think it could be a smart play kind of like what I was saying earlier with doing the Blue Cow, Ben Affleck, and the and the more kind of fun superhero we Keaton Batman. We have the, the kind of rugged, gruff, grounded Batman really on lock right now in that Reeves universe. We're about to get the Penguin show on HBO, or now Max, uh, with Colin Farrell, kind of building out that further. And so really what we need from a Batman in the DCEU should be something that doesn't check any of those boxes because they're already being checked really well. We So maybe now we we lean into the superhero, we almost campy Batman that we got in the kind of Adam West days and elements of the, of the Burton stuff. And I mean, I say that Joel Schumacher is maybe in some ways the campiest Batman that we've gotten uh, with the Val Kilmer and George Clooney films so there's a part of me and I just I feel crazy saying this but there's a part of me that thinks maybe they are having George Clooney back as Batman and we're going to get an older Batman but not an older angry sad Batman like we've gotten with Ben Affleck but an older kind of suave Bruce Wayne that's training up a younger either Robin or or Something like I think we're going to get a classic Batman and Robin kind of cape crusader, you know, wow, bam, punching sound effects, Batman. Okay, and I think that does make sense to me. I just the George Clooney of it all is is hard to wrap my head around.
1: Okay, one last time, in the words of Michael Scott, explain to me like I'm five years old. This is my summary of everything you just said because Barry removed the tomato can that he had originally put in, but then he changed it to a different row, thinking nothing would really happen. It did end up freeing his dad because of the new security footage, but that decision still had ripple effects. And the ripple effects is that he's now in a universe that's very similar to the one we know, but it's how DC's going to use a reset because in that universe now, his dad is free, but It's a different Superman. It's a different Aquaman who just happens to be the same actor and will be playing it very similarly.
0: Right. Which I'm sure the same will be true about Wonder Woman.
1: There could be exactly. There could be a Gal Gadot Wonder Woman in this universe. Mm -hmm. But now in this universe, at least for maybe a film... George Clooney is Batman, but they could make another movie really soon where he's raising a younger Batman and then retire and step away and that new character becomes like a younger Batman. That's what you're saying?
0: I, th- I think... <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Now, again, I don't know, given that Robert Pattinson's Batman is younger, I don't feel like that's probably a, a priority there. I think the biggest dearth in the DC catalog has been at least on the film side, has been an active Robin. I mean, we haven't gotten one since the Schumacher films. And maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's all the scene is supposed to be a nod to, you know, is is that we will be getting kind of a Batman and Robin dynamic like we got there. Uh, Yeah. Crazy. It is crazy. I do, you know, I do think there's something to us getting a, getting a suave kind of fun Bruce Wayne again, because that's something that we haven't, Clearly just so Dark old. Knight. Yeah, old. yeah. True, true. But the Dark Knight movies did a good job of showing that as a as a character that that Bruce Wayne put on. But we haven't we haven't gotten that in the the Batman, the Reeves verse yet. Although I think we we probably will in future installments. We didn't get it in the Snyder stuff. And I I do think that kind of getting to the extent that they want to lean into the Playboy Bruce Wayne thing, I think George Clooney is kind of perfect. So I don't know. Uh, I, I think in a in a much shorter way, the other interpretation would be that that Barry is initially realizing he's still in the wrong universe, and then maybe gets back to his original universe by the end credit scene and as explaining what's gone on in those other universes to the original Aquaman. But I think that that's, I don't think that would make any sense for the kind of reset guns going for unless that's them trying to kind of write Ezra Miller out of the universe also, or leave the, the door open. But there are two more things I wanted to hit on real quick before we close. And, they kind of connect. I wanted to talk about how this movie adapts the Flashpoint comic by Jeff Johns and Amy Kubert and, and what that can mean here. I am not a huge DC Comics acolyte, although I've been reading up more this year. But one of the more controversial things that's happened on the DC side is about 10 years ago, when they had the Flashpoint event, which plot-wise has a ton of similarity with this movie. And I actually think in some ways, this movie did as, as good of a job doing a, a kind of page-to-screen adaptation as I've seen uh, in the comics world. After that comic event, DC did a reset of its comics universe. And they they undertook this initiative called the New 52, where basically they reverted a lot of characters back to these prior versions and that allowed them to tell different kinds of stories and, you know, undo some kind of inconvenient plot elements that had prevented them from doing so. I think most characters were supposed to be de-aged by like 10 years and have slightly different backstories. And so the whole point is, yeah, it's basically the DC that you recognize to where if you pick up a comic and don't know that things reset especially as it went on you probably wouldn't be totally lost but it also did reset things and so it was very similar to what we wind up with here which is what makes me think we're kind of living now in the the new 52 of the DC EU the other thing that I wanted to bring up there when it comes to Flashpoint, I'm talking about them adapting that stuff so well. And I, I really was, I was impressed with how deftly they were able to deal with certain elements. You'll recognize, for instance, that there's a moment in the Flashpoint comic where he's looking for Superman because he knows that if he can find Superman in this alternate universe he's wound up in, that Superman can help save the day from there's kind of a different threat going on there. The difference is in the comic, it's sort of a quick, he finds out he's being held in the in secret bunker and he's super skinny because he's never been exposed to light. And it is Clark, but it's a different Clark because he was never raised in Kansas, you know, as like a small town boy. Instead, he was raised as this government lab rat. And so that's kind of the extent of it. And he doesn't play a huge part plot wise. I think you can kind of see why that works some ways better, I think, than what we got here, where it does become a big plot element. But another piece of that is in that the alternate universe in the comics, we actually get this Thomas Wayne, uh, like what if what if Bruce had died in the alleyway with his mom instead of Martha and Thomas, and Thomas becomes Batman to avenge his son. And so we get kind of an older, like grizzled Batman there that has a similar relationship. And I thought, again, what an excellent opportunity to bring in Keaton and take a character that I think people would have very little emotional resonance with normally and make it into the highlight of the movie. So I, I, I just wanted to talk, as again, as someone that hasn't read that many DC comics, I wanted to touch on that because I, I think it maybe does inform what this movie was trying to do and the impact of it moving forward.
1: In closing for me, rapid fire, I'm going to hit my remaining notes that are very small and we have not talked about yet. I thought it was a pretty dope Wonder Woman entrance, but I can't stop thinking about your hate for Wonder Woman now. So I'm like hyper analyzing every word she says to see if it fits or not. So yeah, thank you for ruining that for me. Batman's grapples were so dope. Mm -hmm. The Batmobile reveal, so dope. Again, to see the old Batman stuff. And, and then lastly, I thought the tours song at the very end was as badass as it gets. That was probably yes. I got half chills twice, <laughs> is what I said. Like never a full blown <laughs> I'm all in. You know, never a Spider-Verse, I'm all in on this. But yeah, yeah, that was a cool sequence with Jack White just shredding and them both doing the red and blue speed running stuff was was pretty, pretty cool.
0: Yes, I did love that. I also saw that Jack White got a shout out in the in the credits, got a thanks beyond the actual credit for the song, uh, which was fun. Oh, really? I, I I I wanted to also just since we're talking music, mention I had not seen beforehand who was scoring this. Uh, I really like Wallfish's stuff that he's done both in the it films and uh, I think he worked with with Zimmer on. Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Off the fact check myself, but okay. Uh, I and I say that because sometimes I'll be watching a movie and I'll f- if I find myself asking who scored this, it's normally either because it's it's so weirdly bad, which is thankfully not often the case these days, or because there are moments that really stick out to me and the stuff that he did sort of throughout. Uh, I, I thought it was really great. It felt kind of like a classic, almost John Williams Superman-y thing that he was doing when it came to the Flash scenes and to the extent we had a theme there. My one critique would be, I don't know that it's a there was a particularly recognizable Flash theme in it, but I did like what it lent the film in terms of the kind of classic superhero vibe the thing that I really wanted to talk about, I recognize that they beat us over the head again and again with the Elfman Batman theme every time we saw Batman. And I never once got tired of it.
1: (laughs) You love it. I felt the same way as I did with a lot of the Elfman Batman talk uh, from the 1989 film, which is that I thought all the music was fine. (laughs) It was fine. (laughs) I, I think so much of the music is tied to how I'm reacting emotionally to the film and it's chicken and the egg, right? Like, am I, am I bought into the story and then the music supplementing or is the music Mm -hmm. so good that then it's getting me to buy into the emotional moments? Right. And I don't always know. And for me, there was just a slight disconnect there. So it's not ripping his score. I'm not saying that at all. It's just, I wasn't totally bought into the emotional moments and I think the music not being particularly outstanding probably plays a small role in that. That's not the reason why, but I don't sure. I didn't leave like I couldn't right now sing any of the stuff back to you except for do, 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 do,
0: do. Yeah. so which well, you hate. Wow. Okay.
1: And I like. <laughs> so like I I I don't know. It was it was fine. It was fine. <laughs>
0: Go ahead I okay I, I so we obviously disagree when it comes to the Elfman Batman theme but the the thing that I kept thinking over and over here is man, it is maybe it is low-hanging fruit. I know we've when we've had composers on I understand why they're kind of loath to do too many theme shout outs whenever they're dealing with ensemble films and you know to their credit I, the only themes that I remember from this movie are not the ones that were written for this movie. So I I understand maybe where they're coming from. However, given that my favorite part of this movie was basically getting a third Michael Keaton Batman film, I really love that every time we got Michael Keaton as Batman, we got the Michael Keaton Batman score. And it just, I kept thinking, man, it's such a bummer to me that we only ever got like 10 seconds of the Elfman Spider-Man score in No Way Home. And I know that it's, I know that it's such a, that's a small thing for a movie that a lot of people regard as kind of a perfect superhero movie, but I just feel like there were opportunities for it that it didn't have to be nearly as much here because Michael Keaton's Batman was a bigger focus of this film than Toby's Spider-Man was of No Way Home. And I think that that's probably ultimately a, uh, to this film's detriment and to No Way Home's uh, betterment. But I just, am I crazy? Like there are like three different moments in No Way Home where we're just kind of given a, a generic take on the Giacchino Spider-Man score. And if they had... Given us the opportunity to just get a, a few more of those Elfman moments, which is a score that you and I both do agree on being great, I feel like some of those nostalgia plays would have hit even even bigger. And not, I, I, I don't know. May, I, I'm sure there Did are folks out there that Did this somehow just turn to a be, No Way
1: Home critique? Because I will not stand <laughs> for that in this episode if that's what we're talking about.
0: I, I, I am, I am going to go on record critiquing the amount of. Danny Elfman that we got in No Way Home. I feel I feel <laughs> the biggest fan critique. right here.
1: That the electric guitar from Multiverse of Madness. Robbie is obsessed with it. The biggest Danny Elfman fan possible. You know why hey. I can't sing his theme back to you right now? Because there's so many notes. I don't know that any human being could sing it back to you. There,
0: there's never not been the most amount of notes. Okay, ever. you you are with me on the Spider Man yep. Elfman theme though.
1: We're getting totally sidetracked off the rails here. I was wrapping us up. I am being funny. I'm just being funny. (laughs) I thought the music in this was fine to good. Okay. I'm not saying, I don't think it's the best score ever. I don't think that's crazy for me to say. I think it's a six out of 10. I'm not saying it's a disaster. It's fine. And I think that his theme for Batman is good. That's like a seven out of 10 for me. Uh, And in No Way Home, I do appreciate the moments we do get because they're really sweet. Like when when Toby is finally like talking to Sandman, you hear the do-do-do-do. It's really cool. Um, but yes, I think I also would have appreciated a little more sprinkling in there. So I'm just being funny. Yeah, I think we mostly wow. agree. Um,
0: Thank you. That's all I needed.
1: My two closing points briefly. And this is where I'm going to start bringing in a couple of biases, okay? So I am leaving the screensaver thing behind, and this is a Kyle from Friends from Work talking. I'm just really tired of the visual effects talk over in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It feels like online people beat it to death. And I'm just here to point out that they weren't awesome here either.
0: So they were weird here, man.
1: Maybe it's hard to to do special effects for stuff that's all fake, guys. And I just get really tired of the talk. It's, uh, I, I, I... this is where I'm biased. I guess I just start thinking that everyone thinks the, the visual effects in the Marvel Cinematic Universe are terrible. And if they only just did it like these other franchises, they'd be all good. There were a lot of goofy things here. When Kara took Barry up into the sky, it looked pretty CGI to me. And there were a lot of the slow running things that got a little wonky. And okay, that's fine, whatever. It's not the best. It didn't really ruin the movie for me, but I'm just tired of the the dialogue. That's it.
0: It's not perfect. Candace said that the CGI here looked like it came from the Polar Express.
1: <laughs> Ouch. Am I crazy? <laughs> like, it, let's not hold these other franchises up to like, like this, you know, they're all on this pedestal and Marvel's way at the foot, you know? It's like, come on, that's not true. No, I, th- I think that's right. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 looked a good 25% better than this film. Agreed.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I would say so. Okay,
1: okay. And here's my last point. And if you don't, if you want no spoilers for Across the Spider Verse, then this is probably your jumping off point. We're wrapping this up, anyways. But I just wanted to say that I am so fascinated on how Spider-Verse now. And I know this is a follow-up to a, a previous episode. And by the way, if you've seen that film, you can check out our Spider-Verse episode on Screensaver. It's an earlier, I think it's the previous episode on Screensaver. So go find that on your podcast feed and check that out. But I'm so fascinated to see how they approach the time travelness of the third film cuz we don't know yet. And in this film, it took a hard stance that Ultimately, the thing that had to happen was Barry had to let that other universe die, right? That was the assumption, right? That Barry, by saving his mom, created this alternate Barry to where now they're both in the same universe with powers. And in, it, in that universe, it ultimately entirely ends, right? Like Zod kills all of Earth.
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right.
1: That's what was going to happen. So we learned that in this film, Barry cannot change it no matter what he tries with his mother. And I'm just fascinated to see what stance does the Spider-Verse take? Is Miles going to try to stop, you know, again, spoiler here, you know who from dying? And then it all unravels no matter what. And no matter what he tries, he has to eventually let you know who die? That's crazy to me. Or are they going to take the stance that you can change it while still preventing the catastrophic events? Fascinating. Yeah. We have have two models right now with Endgame and Loki being one and this now being the second. And I'm excited to see what they do with Spider-Verse for the third. My lasting screenshot for this movie is one of two things. (laughs) They're both Batman related. It's him saying, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. That's what I can't (laughs) stop thinking about. But also the one time he takes out the two ships with the double grapple at the end. And that yeah. got a huge cheer in our theater. Those are probably my lasting images of the film.
0: I think I I find myself thinking of that scene where they're breaking out Kara, which again is largely Batman related. And it's funny because our main Flash doesn't even have his powers in that scene. But when they kind of eject and the, the oh, yeah. no parachute moment. Oh, uh, but sick. then also... Like the, just the, I really liked the the to your point the kind of close up combat that we got uh, with with Batman there. So that was like that was a point in, in in my theater experience where I was like, this is very fun. I'm having a lot of fun. So I think that's yeah, the yeah. the image that's going to stick.
1: I hope we didn't undersell that part. Those Batman moments got me really revved up. The no parachute and still jumping anyways. Him beating up those guards, the mm-hmm. Batmobile, the
0: Batwing at the end, like the Elfman score, you know? The
1: Elfman score. <laughs> I was legitimately <laughs> giddy about that stuff. I'm, I'm serious. So, yeah. overall for me, I think it's exactly what I said in the social media thing. It, 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 it's a pretty good movie. I think the film currently, as we are recording this, has 72% critic score. To me, that's almost dead on. Dead on. Yeah. I'm, I'm in total lockstep. I, I think I would say 7 out of 10, maybe 6.8 out of 10. Still a fresh movie. Fun. If you like the cameos, if you like the DC universe, you're really going to like it even more. A fun entry into the DCU that's maybe better than a lot of their others. But overall, a few things that keep it from being my favorite movie of the summer. Um, so I had Sure. Fun.
0: Yeah, and, and agreed. I, I walked out last night in a really good mood, which is always, you know, a, a telling sign, I guess. I had a lot of fun. Even, and, and you know, we talked about kind of some of the stakes and the expectations and whatever, but I think that this would maybe be my favorite, at, at least like DCU proper film. Uh, yeah, Suicide Squad close. is kind of its own thing, you know, Uh I, I don't. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. Man of Steel, I think, winds up holding up pretty well. Wonder Woman, I also think, has some pretty gnarly third act issues. Uh, and I think that the fun stuff here I found to be more fun than those moments in Wonder Woman. Why did they sense. have
1: Ares be a real god? Why? Why couldn't they just have it just be? One oh, of the
0: great. One of the great clubs? <laughs> just yeah. a,
1: like, that could have been so good that she had to wrestle with that. The missteps of her oh, day and age. Yeah. Thank yeah, you I mean, so much for listening to this. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, you're about <laughs> to get started. Do you want to get started or do you want me to say bye?
0: Sorry, I was just going to say. Yeah, and, and that's, by the way, that's what I mean. Uh, that's one of the big, had they changed that, I think my, my whole analysis of the, the DCU hierarchy would be different.
1: It's all changed ever since Black Adam. Thanks for listening to Screensaver. Not a day goes
0: by that I haven't thought about Black
1: Adam. (laughs) Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Friends from Work as well if you like what we're doing here. I think you might enjoy that. And we'll see you next time for a jam-packed summer over here on Screensaver. No.